Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. You'll notice that contrary to how we often tell it, the Christmas story as recorded in the Bible does not begin with a narrative. It starts with a tree, a family Christmas tree of a sort. After the last pages of the Old Testament, the words of the prophet Malachi, after the several long centuries of silence thereafter, the first words of the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew kick off with a list of names, the long family tree of Jesus. Now, due in no small part to TV shows like Who Do You Think You Are, and if you're not familiar with this show, Who Do You Think You Are, it features famous people learning something, sometimes surprising facts about their ancestry. Because of shows like that, investigating one's genealogy has become a popular pastime for some people. Just a brief word, is my, my second leg of my sabbatical part of that journey was investigating my Irish roots, and I won't spend too much time with you other than to tell you I learned I have a lot more research to do. <laughs> um, but I learned some interesting things about my mom's side of the family, my Irish heritage, and that, was, that is very compelling to me. Uh, but some people uh, find this stuff boring. Um, for example, not to throw her under the bus, hope she's not watching, my sister could care less about where our family comes from and all of that jazz. And when I tell, was telling her in my sabbatical, which is why I'm hesitant to share with you the things I found out, she almost fell asleep. Um, <laughs> And for most people, the genealogies of the Bible merit little more than a cursory glance, you know, as we quickly turn the page to get to the good stuff. None of us, for example, raise your hand if you're different, none of us, for example, would put Matthew's recording of the relatives of Jesus on the list of our favorite or memorized passages from Scripture. Anybody want to list that as their memory verse or life verse or something like that? But... As we'll discover today, as we move ever closer to the celebration of the birth of Jesus, this is no ordinary genealogy. What we're about to dive into is no mere record of biological productivity. No, if we take the time to understand what Matthew is trying to show and tell us, we'll soon recognize what we have here is more than just a list of names. What we have before us is the first Christmas tree, Jesus' family Christmas tree, an insightful and encouraging glimpse into the fullness of who Jesus is and the true nature of the gift of Christmas, a gift that offers so much more than we often appreciate. Now, I could read this list of names to you, but like my sister, you might fall asleep in the midst of me reading it. And even though I practiced it, um, I might stumble along the way. So what we're going to do instead is we're going to keep our eyes on the screen because many, many years ago, a Christian artist named Andrew Peterson actually created an album, and it's actually a concert that goes through the whole Christmas story, going from the Old Testament to the birth of Jesus. And as a part of that, he actually has a song called Matthew's Begats. And so the scripture that's right in front of you, if you want to follow along, is going to be on the screen, and it's going to be set to music. And you never know, this might become one of your favorite Christmas songs. Keep your eyes on the screen. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac he had Jacob, Jacob he had Judah and his kin. Well, then Perez and Zerah came from Judah's woman Tamar, Perez he brought Hezron up and then came Aram, then Amenadab. 
Joshin, who was then the dad of Salmon, who with Rahab fathered Boaz. Ruth, she married Boaz, who had Obed, who had Jesse. Jesse, he had David, who we know as king. David, he had Solomon by dead Uriah's wife. Solomon, well, you all know him. He had good old Rehoboam, followed by Abijah, who had Asa. Asa had Jehoshaphat, had Joram, had Isaiah, who had Jotham, then Ahaz, then Hezekiah. Followed by Manasseh, who had Amon, who was a man, who was father of a good boy named Josiah. Grandfather Jehoiakim, who caused the Babylonian captivity because he was a liar. And then he had Shealtiel, who begat Zerubbabel, who had Abiud, who had Eliakim. Eliakim had Azer, who had Zadok, who had Achim. Achim was the father of Eliab. Listen very closely, I don't want to sing this twice. Jacob was the father of Joseph, husband of Mary, mother of Christ. Stuck in your head now, isn't it? <laughs> I love that. Um, so, what we just witnessed, cramming was the cramming of nearly 2,000 years of biblical history into just 17 verses. From the start of the promise of Israel to Israel's eventual emergence as a nation, all the way through Israel's downfall, exile, and later return to her homeland. Matthew starts his version of the Christmas story with a curated list of Jesus' ancestors. Three sets, by the way, of 14 names, 41 generations in total. But I don't know if you noticed I said it's a curated list. In other words, Matthew's genealogy is not all-inclusive. There were, in fact, more generations in Jesus' ancestry than Matthew records. For example, if you have the Bible open, and if you don't, it's okay. In verse 8, Matthew left out three generations between Joram and Uzziah. Now, by modern methods, something like that, we'd view you know, what, what Matthew's doing here as being historically inaccurate, and therefore incomplete and somehow suspect. But there's no scandal here. There's nothing suspicious in what Matthew is doing by omitting some generations. Leaving out generations or curating genealogies was a common, acceptable, and understood Hebrew literary practice, going all the way back, by the way, to the genealogies in the book of Genesis. The recordings of genealogies in the ancient world wasn't so much, you see, about the strict precision of recording generation after generation. No, Ancient geologies were ways of making historical, or in this case, theological claims, and Matthew's readers would have understood this. But since we're not in the know as they were, we're going to find out exactly what Matthew is doing, and along the way, we'll also discover a few surprises as to whom Matthew includes and why. Well, first and foremost, as he, before he begins the story of Jesus' birth, Matthew's intention is to validate Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph, as indeed, without question, being the long-awaited, long-promised Messiah of Israel, and by extension, the world. To affirm this, Matthew establishes two key aspects of Jesus' lineage. 
that he was a descendant of Abraham, and that he was from the line of King David. First, let's talk about Abraham. The very moment humanity in Genesis chapter 3 willfully rejected and divorced itself from the grace of God by choosing to go its own way, despite this rebellion, our Creator promised that one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. In other words, that one day a child would be born who would break our self-inflicted bondage to sin, brokenness, and death. But it was much, much, much later that God began to narrow down from which man and woman this ancient divine promise made in the beginning would become rooted. And calling a man named Abram, who became Abraham, and Sarai, his wife, who became Sarah, calling Abraham and Sarah, who had been unable to start a family and were now well past their childbearing years, God called them to leave their home and to go to a foreign land, and the Lord declared in so doing that by his grace they would have a child, a son named Isaac. God further said that through their offspring, he promised to expand their family into a great nation. Into a great nation, not for its own self, but into a great nation so that through that nation, God could bless all the people of the earth. And to reaffirm this connection, by the way, Matthew also includes in his genealogy the mention of Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, the father of Judah, who along with his brothers ties Jesus to the 12 tribes of Israel, from which Israel would eventually become a nation. So having begun through the first set of 14 names with the heritage of Abraham, which confirms, by the way, Jesus' Jewish roots, Matthew then focuses on how the Lord narrowed down the family line from whence the Messiah would come. Centuries later, Matthew highlights that Jesse fathered David And this signals a turn in the genealogy because this emphasizes the dawn of the kings of Israel. And you might remember after acquiescing to the people's first failed choice for a king, God put the anointed crown on David and in so doing promised that both the house, the throne, and the kingdom of David would endure forever. Establishing Jesus as the true descendant of David was important for Matthew's Jewish readers because it not only pointed to Jesus' qualifications as a son of David to be viewed as a coming king and the expected Messiah, but it also affirmed the fulfillment of God's promise to King David himself. The final transition in Jesus' family tree is marked by the mention of Jeconiah, the monarch who was, destroy, who, who was dethroned excuse me, by the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar II, in the 6th century B.C., the one who was a liar. And so these last set of names reflect those who were displaced from their homeland and exiled to Babylon, but they also reflected in these names are those, the later generations, who eventually came back to Israel, Israel that was no longer a free nation but an occupied territory continually held under the thumb of rival world empires. These are the generations for whom the prophets of the Lord renewed God's long-standing promise to Israel, even as they seemed at that point farthest out of reach. These are the generations when the divine assurance of a complete restoration and lasting freedom were tied by the prophets to the expectation of the rise of a great deliverer, a savior, a messiah. And so what Matthew does through three sets of 14 names, 41 generations in total, Matthew connects the key events of Israel's history from Abraham to David, David to the exile, and the exile coming back home to Jesus. And he does this again all to validate that Jesus is the Christ, 
The Christ not being Jesus' last name, but the Christ being the Greek equivalent for the Hebrew word for Messiah. And Matthew, if you notice, underscores this four times, that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the anticipated Savior and Deliverer of a people held in bondage to the powers of evil, sin, and death, exercised by every rival empire to the kingdom of God. Jesus is the King of kings, the royal Son of David, the one for whom all of Israel has been waiting. Jesus is the answer to God's long-standing promise to Abraham to bring the light of God's blessings to all nations and to all creation. But Matthew actually goes even further than this in his presentation. I love this part. You know I geek out about this kind of stuff. Hopefully you won't fall asleep. Because Matthew goes further than what I just shared with you in his presentation. This is one of those surprises I mentioned that we find in his construction of Jesus' family tree. But it's a hidden surprise. If you still have your Bible open, you're not going to be able to see what I'm going to show you because it's a hidden surprise because the English translations of our Bibles completely miss what Matthew was trying to do. Allow me to explain. Much later in Matthew's gospel, way past the genealogy, when an adult Jesus is questioned as to his purpose, why are you here? He will reply that he comes to fulfill the law and the prophets. Well, from the very start of his presentation of the good news of Jesus Christ through this genealogy, Matthew aims to reinforce this declaration of Jesus that will come later, but he does it in a clever, creative way. Now again, while we can't see it in our English translations, what happens in the original language of, the, of this, this uh, genealogy is Matthew adjusts a few letters in some names in Jesus' family tree. And again, this was not an uncommon practice back then. It was an obvious way of making an important point. So in this case, Matthew changes the name of Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, in verse 8, to Asaph. And then later changes the name of Amon, the father of Josiah, in verse 10, to Amos. Now, Matthew's original readers immediately would have spotted these out-of-place names. But even if those names were still in our English translations of our Bibles, we might not even notice, or we would perhaps wonder if Matthew made some kind of mistake. But it's no mistake. By intentionally changing the name of Asa to Asaph, Asaph, the temple musician and poet who composed several of the Psalms, Matthew is not so subtly inferring that all of the wisdom literature in the Bible, including the book of Psalms, also points to Jesus as the Messiah. And by intentionally changing the name of Amon to Amos, Amos not the name of a king of Israel, but the name of one of the prophets in the Old Testament, Matthew is leaving no room for doubt that Jesus is the one the prophets spoke about, the one whose forecoming was foretold by the prophets. What Matthew is trying to communicate is while Jesus is from a line of kingly succession, Jesus as the Messiah doesn't just fulfill Israel's royal hopes. No, Jesus is the, also the culmination of all the rich tradition and hopes to which the worship, wisdom, and prophecy of Israel points. Matthew wants us to make no mistake, to fully understand not only what Jesus came to do, and why? But that Jesus is the one the psalmist sang about. Jesus is the one the prophets wrote about. Jesus is the one who is the perfect and final king of Israel, who blesses all the nations, every tongue and every tribe. That Jesus alone is the one who could do it. 
That Jesus is the, alone is the one the world has been waiting for, who comes to truly deliver us from evil, to save us from ourselves, and to redeem and restore all creation to the fullness of its created potential forever and ever. Amen. Now, for Matthew's original, primarily Jewish audience, Jesus' family tree would have in many ways lined up with their expectations. But then again, as we're about to see, Matthew offers a few more surprises as well. Surprises that make it clear this is a new kind of family tree. For instance, maybe we've never noticed it before, or perhaps we've always wondered about Matthew's inclusion of five women. Five women that seem out of place amid an otherwise long list of men. Indeed, in the ancient world where women had little agency and virtually no voice of their own, a person's lineage invariably was traced from father to son, as men were considered the head of their households. Women scarcely ever appear in most ancient Israelite and Jewish genealogies. If you want a biblical example of this, by the way, look at 1 Chronicles chapters 1 through 9, and you'll notice the absence of any women whatsoever. So then, as Matthew breaks protocol here, and we run across not one woman's name, but the name of five women in Jesus' family tree, you have to conclude Matthew did this intentionally. And for starters, why only five women? Why only five women? I mean, doesn't every person listed have a mother? Why mention only these five? But it gets even more interesting when we ask why these specific five women? Matthew, in the inclusion of women in the family tree of Jesus, could have listed, think about it, he could have listed the great matriarchs of the faith, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel. But no, Matthew omits any mention of them and surprisingly chooses instead to include women who on the surface would appear not to represent the best of the family line of Jesus. And without getting too deep into their stories, let's just say the first four women mentioned, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, ended up having questionable, if not controversial, reputations within the eyes of their various communities. And I want to make this clear. Those reputations were born not simply, as it is sometimes and sadly, and I would say wrongly presented in the church, those reputations are not born of just, just of their own choosing and doing, but those bad reputations or questionable reputations are also in no small part thanks to the bad choices and hurtful actions of others. Consider, for example, Bathsheba. Having cited Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth explicitly by name, again, you may have noticed it in the song, you'll look in your Bible, it's very interesting, Matthew avoids explicitly naming Bathsheba. He doesn't even name her. Instead, Matthew records in verse 6, David became the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This is an unmistakable reference to David's horrific act of adultery that turned murderous when after sleeping with Bathsheba, he had her husband Uriah sent to his death on the front line of battle. You see, Matthew isn't casting Bathsheba in a negative light as much as he is critiquing David and his reign as less than ideal. Despite the much-touted Davidic monarchy, which was often considered the high point of Israel's history, Matthew is setting the record straight. 
and showing the downward spiral, the ultimately failed experiment of the kingdom of Israel, which ended in civil war and then exile, began with none other than King David himself. You know, it's interesting to me. I mean, you can find Bible studies, you can hear other sermons, you can read books that that when they talk about Matthew's genealogy, they will always zero in on these four women to make this, this huge point that these four women are highlighted by Matthew because they're examples that proves that Jesus identified, that Jesus came for the troubled, less than perfect, disreputable people. And I find that really interesting that it's these four women who are said to represent that because late-breaking newsflash, all of these people, and not just the women, fall into that classification. Every name on that genealogy falls into that designation because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are to one degree or another broken, flawed, conflicted, far from perfect. All of our families... All of our stories are marked by skeletons in our closets. I'll tell you mine if you tell me yours. Embarrassments, failures, losses of some kind. The good news of the gospel, which Matthew's presentation of Jesus' family tree reflects beyond just the names of four women, is that God does not shy away from all our chaos and mess, but comes down to be with and for us in Jesus Christ, not in the form of a human But through the birth process by which we all entered this world, God becomes a human being, identifying with our struggles and our hurts. And yet, instead of falling victim to them, God redeems us. God saves us from all our troubles through the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, none of us are counted out because of our mistakes and failures. And that is sometimes the most powerful witness I can give as a pastor when people come and talk to me and want to pray is how many people I encounter who think that they are somehow unique in their brokenness, that they are somehow, that they've gone too far and therefore God is done with them. God has no place for them. They are on the out and they're just hoping that maybe they might get a few scraps thrown through the gates. But this genealogy demonstrates that none of us are counted out because of our mistakes and failures. All of our misdeeds, whatever they may be, and if you're one of those people right now who's like, oh, but you don't know, you don't know, whatever they are, none of it disqualifies us from being included, from being invited, from being adopted back into the family of God. You see, what stands out about Matthew's inclusion of these four women is not what they did or didn't do, What stands out about Matthew's inclusion of these four women is who they were and therefore who they represent. Non-Israelites. Tamar was a Canaanite, as was Rahab. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba was married to a Hittite. They were Gentiles. They were foreigners. They were perceived outsiders to the promises of God's redemption, restoration, and salvation. And yet Matthew includes their names as a way of highlighting Jesus as the Messiah comes to embrace the whole world and not only one small part of it. Now looking back, this makes perfect sense, even though over the course of their history, many Israelites came to forget that God's promise given to Abraham was not just for one nation, Israel, but for all the nations of the world. 
And one of the things you'll discover if you continue on reading Matthew's gospel is Matthew's intentional framing of God's ever-inclusive and expanding kingdom that's inaugurated through the birth of Jesus. Matthew will show us it continues to appear beyond the genealogy he provides. And Matthew emphasizes this well into the rest of his gospel. For example, Matthew will bookend his telling of the Christmas story with a gift-filled visit to the Christ child by a handful of star-struck wise men from the East. Outsiders, foreigners who come to pay homage to Jesus as king. And then, only two chapters later in Matthew's Gospel, a fully grown Jesus, much to the shock and chagrin of the Jewish leadership, will explicitly, will publicly recognize the outsiders, the rejects, the unclean, the forsaken of decent society as members of God's family. And it is no coincidence, by the way, that Matthew's version of the gospel concludes with the Great Commission. When Jesus sends out his followers to expand even wider the breadth and width of his family by commanding them to make disciples of what? Of all nations. Now, Matthew throws in one final surprise at the end of this list of names as again he breaks the standard pattern of a genealogy by, if you noticed, failing to identify Joseph as Jesus' father. After 15 whole verses of repeating the line, the father of, the father of, the father of, suddenly in verse 16, Joseph is the father of no one, but instead is identified as the husband of Mary. It's an irregularity that, on the one hand, reinforces the distinctiveness, the uniqueness, the profound mystery of Jesus' birth. Mary is, by the way, the fifth woman mentioned in Matthew's genealogy, after Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah. Like these first four women, Mary does not quite fit the norm. At first glance, she does not seem fully upright, given that she gets pregnant outside of her marriage. But also, like the four before her, she is not to be judged negatively since she is, she is highly favored by God in being chosen to bring Jesus into the world through the power of the Holy Spirit. Matthew, in his own way, is affirming Mary is the mother of Israel's long, longed-for Messiah and that without Mary, there would be no salvation for Israel. Still, perhaps we might wonder, Okay, why does Matthew go to such lengths to lay out Jesus' family tree if he's going to conclude with a clear admission that Joseph was not Jesus' natural father? You know where I'm going with this? How does any argument from Joseph's ancestry, which is what this is, carry any weight or real significance if Matthew's going to pretty much come out and say, Joseph wasn't Jesus' natural father? Well, the answer to that question is, Matthew is setting things up for the importance of what Joseph will be asked by God to do later in the Christmas story, in the verses, that, in fact, that follow. In a dream, reassuring Joseph about Mary's pregnancy, God will direct Joseph to name Mary's child, to name him Jesus. And when Joseph does this, through naming Mary's child, in the eyes of the Mosaic law, Joseph has adopted and embraced Jesus as his own son. By taking the step in the eyes of Matthew's readers, Jesus then becomes a true son of Abraham and David and is part of the family tree. But it's more than that. Matthew doesn't just want us to appreciate that Jesus is just one member in an ongoing family tree of Joseph. 
Something that also stands out that I don't know if you noticed is that Matthew's genealogy moves forward from Abraham to Jesus rather than backward from Jesus to Abraham. And this is important. This is significant because this accentuates how Jesus is the goal of the whole human family. Jesus is the ultimate fruition of the family tree of humanity. Jesus is the star at the top of the Christmas tree. What powerfully stands out in Matthew's forward progression of Jesus' family tree is also this encouragement that God knew from the very beginning exactly where he was going. That God knew from the very beginning exactly where he was going. And along the way, again, know the story, look at the names, and along the way, amid the real, consequential, sometimes good, but more often than not bad, choices of humanity, God did not cease in directing history toward this moment, his glorious purpose for all creation. No, despite epic fails and devastating losses, Despite great man-made tragedies and horrifying acts of violence and evil, God persisted. The Lord never abandoned his long-standing and seemingly most difficult-to-keep promise to us. Beloved, let this sink in. Let that sink in. Because what is gospel truth on the macro level, the broad, wide canvas of human history, is also gospel truth on the micro level, in the far smaller and more accessible movement and maturity of our day-to-day lives. The gospel truth that we may lose our way, but God never loses sight of us. The gospel truth that we may forget who we are, but God never stops being our father and calling us his children. The gospel truth that we may not know where our lives are going, but God never stops tugging, nudging, pulling, and if necessary, carrying us back home and into his arms. The gospel truth that we may not understand what is happening in our lives and why, but God knows what he is doing in and through and often despite what we do or don't do and what others do to us. The gospel truth that we may be slow, we may lose track of time and be late to appreciating and receiving the good news of Jesus Christ and putting our lives in God's hands, but that God is never late and always right on time, vigilantly, persistently revealing and proving that he is with and for us, that lo, he is with us, that he goes before us until the very end of time. The gospel truth that though we may break our promises to God over and over and over again, God never, never, ever breaks any of his promises to us, especially his, most long, his longest standing one, to save us again from ourselves, to deliver us from a fragile, conflicted, finite life into a full, abundant, and everlasting one. Beloved, Jesus' family Christmas tree as provided by Matthew isn't just a glimpse back into God's goodness in the past. It's a means for us to look forward in expectation of God's goodness in the future. 
Matthew, in laying out this family history, is declaring that everything that happened before points to something new, something better with the coming of Jesus. It is a genealogy yet unfinished, as in the span of eternity, God has only just begun adding to the family. The Lord still has more yet to do. And it makes sense because looking back for every moment in the history where God's initial promise found a dose of fulfillment, Isaac is born, the promised land is reached, Solomon is throned as David's royal son, the exiles come back to Judah. At every time that God's initial promise finds a dose of fulfillment, there always seems to be much more yet to come. And even when we come to the end of the Gospels, on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection, we find God's promises to Abraham and David still awaiting their complete fulfillment. For King Jesus, as the Son of David, through the person of the Holy Spirit, is still extending his reign and putting all things under his feet. Through the rise of his body, the church, through all the sons and daughters of Abraham that continue to be adopted by faith, Christ is present. Christ has commissioned. Christ is working through. Christ is not yet finished, extending God's blessing and making disciples of every family, of every nation on the earth. And this is, reminds us of something important that we always forget at Christmas time. And it's this that the first advent that marks our countdown to Christmas, to Christ's birth and Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the first advent. Advent that marks our countdown to Christmas reminds us there is still a second Advent yet to come. That Jesus will return at the end of history for the consummation of what God in Christ started when he came down to be with and for us. The consummation of making all things, including us, new. Our annual celebration of, Christ of Christmas is in fact our testimony that just as Jesus was worth the wait in his first coming, Jesus' return, Christ's second and final coming, will be worth the wait too. Because on that day, we will finally be able to say that we've arrived. So I hope you see. Jesus' family tree isn't simply a list of names to skim over to get to the good stuff that follows. No, Jesus' family tree is the first Christmas tree, offering us a bird's-eye view of God's active and historic promise of salvation, first planted, repeatedly tended, and eventually bursting forth from within the broken heart of our humanity. Matthew's genealogy gives us name after name of men and women who represent not only the people Jesus came from, but represent the people Jesus came for. His list of very real flesh and blood people, of some who were better than others, but all who were broken and imperfect, and yet were intricately, purposefully, and imperatively used by God over the course of history to bring us to the doorstep of Jesus' birth, affirms something powerful and encouraging. For we who are all about second chances, for we who long for a new beginning and a fresh start, Matthew's genealogy is a witness to the gospel truth that if God could move, that if God could work through and ultimately redeem such a host of messy, chaotic, and incomplete people like them, then there is hope for us all because God can, because God will move, work through, and ultimately redeem people like us too.
where our Savior's birth at the end of this family tree proclaims we are more than the worst things that we have ever done. That while our sin may be great, God's love for us all is greater still. That none of us, none of us, is excluded from becoming a part, from being grafted into Jesus' family Christmas tree. This, my friends, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.